0: presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, and as you do, I'm going to kind of place it out here for a minute. If I were to stand here in front of you and claim to be a world-famous horse racing jockey, um, I think there'd be a little bit, yeah, a few smirks on the face, a few, yeah, okay, or yeah, one time you were, or, or what do you mean here? Um, I'm not really quite the size for it, as you can see. Uh, the Kentucky Derby has a limit. You can only be a maximum of 126 pounds. I know I'm slender, but not that. Um, and you have to be at least 16 to enter the race. So, like, there's like, this little window. It's possible that in my life I was able to qualify even to meet those expectations. But if I were to tell you this, and like, obviously the eyes would roll, and you'd be like, Chris, take a hike. You know? but, but let's say I'm very insistent about this, as I often am, and, and I, I say, you gotta listen to me. I, I used to be a horse racing jockey. I, I wanna prove it to you. Um, so let's say I remain very adamant and you're like, fine. Okay, we know you, we like you, fine. But you've gotta show us some proof. Like show us some evidence here, because like, we're having a really hard time believing that you were once a jockey. At this time, I realize that I'm supposed to be the guy that's explaining this to you, but I'm not doing a very good job. And so instead, I bring in um, a reputable man, my manager, a guy named Bob Deacon. Uh, He's a home builder by day, but he's also a horse racing jockey manager by night. And he knows my whole repertoire. He knows what I've done, and he's seen it before. And he's coming along to help me explain to you that I really am a horse racing jockey. Um, Again, this is a guy you can trust. I bring up here and he starts to kind of lay out the evidence to show you. He shows you some old pictures of me on horses, shows you some newspaper clippings. He's got like this old dead rose garland that looks like it might have at one time be draped over a horse. Uh, He brings you some old trophies that look like they came out of the back of my grandmother's garage. You know, but like he brings all this stuff to show you and all you're like, right, not buying it. Like you could have gotten that horse memorabilia anywhere and slapped Chris's face on it easily. And Bob realizes, he's like, okay, they're not buying it. This is not good. Hold on a second. Let me show you something more legitimate. Let me show you some of Chris's credentials. I've got paperwork here that shows Chris's training record as as training to be a jockey. I have his license when he became a rider for these big races when he turned 16. I also have the entrance receipts that he paid for entrance into these derbies. And I even have the 2001 Kentucky Derby list here that has Chris Lowndes' name here at the bottom. Now, what would you do at that point? At the least some of us would say, well, some might still walk out, but some might say, okay, okay, if that's all true, then, okay, maybe I have different thoughts about Chris than I thought I had. That's a little bit, sounds like some proof here. Um, And most of us would at least say, you know, let's give this a fair try and understand what's going on. So you'd scan the records, you'd have to ask to see them, and you'd see in these records that my name actually does appear on the training records. You see my horse racing license with my date of birth and all the different things that show that I actually do own a jockey horse racing license. You may be able to even look at over and analyze the receipt from Churchill Downs there in Kentucky realizing like that my name is actually on that list. It's way down at the bottom, but it's on the list. By this time you realize that my claims are not completely and utterly ridiculous, but rather that I have some sort of proof to show something. That I have these things to show that you know maybe something is going on. They cause you to sit up and take notice of me as a real potential of being a horse racing jockey. Today as we enter Matthew, we're going to learn all about horses. Just kidding. Today as we go into Matthew, we are going to see instead him provide us paperwork or documentation or credentials to show that He is who He said He is. For us to understand that this is documentation pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. The genealogy here, verses 1 through 17, is the historical credentials, the pedigree of the Messiah. This is, as it were, the Messiah's paperwork, his documentation to prove that He should be heard not just as some other dude who professes to be a great teacher of the law, but rather, more importantly, the one who claims to be the anointed one sent by God who was prophesied of old. Now, if these things are true of this guy, he is technically qualified to be the Messiah king. Now, that doesn't mean that he is necessarily, because there are several sons, but he definitely qualifies to be the king. When you read through this, you'll also notice a couple other things in this genealogy, though. You're going to learn a couple things, seeing that he includes several details that don't seem to make sense up front. Why did he add this thing here and there? The details are interesting, uh, but they're even strange at times, but they don't make sense without us reading the rest of the book of Matthew. They're going to seem to be almost extemporaneous, like they don't matter to the genealogy. Today, We are going to try to make sense of some of these details and understand Matthew's use of the genealogy in this gospel. But before we get into these verses, we need to take just a minute and discuss a different but related topic we have to consider as we come to the book of Matthew. We need to ask ourselves this question, why did Matthew write the book of Matthew, this account? We know that this was written probably around 70 A.D., and Jesus actually died around 33 A.D., something along that lines. So about 40 years of gap between this Jesus Christ living, dying, resurrected, ascending, and when Matthew actually penned these things. So we realize as he's doing this, a lot of stuff has happened. We've had Jesus die, raise again, and ascend to the Father. We've also had the Holy Spirit come. We just read in Acts 2. And what he has done in the church and exploding the church out, we're seeing it become a, 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 not just a branch of Judaism, but Christianity as a whole. The church itself has become its own entity. that is head is Jesus Christ. And so we get here and we think about the data. And we think about all these different things and we say to ourselves, why did Matthew write this account? For the sake of time, I'm not going to hold out on you Matthew wrote this gospel account, this narrative, this story that we call the book of Matthew. He wrote this account to show that Jesus Christ fulfilled every messianic promise and prophecy that the Old Testament had to give. He wrote to show Israel, and therefore the whole world, that Jesus was the Messiah King. Therefore, he writes to call men and women everywhere to submit to him as king and as that they would be his obedient and joyful subjects in the real kingdom of God. Like the one that is the king is Jesus Christ himself. Now, if it was you and me, how would we write this account down? If our goal is to take these things, the truth that we know to be true about Jesus, and to to put them into either some sort of a letter or some sort of a book, what would we do? How would you try to write in a way that would convincingly tell all those who are looking for the Messiah, that that Messiah has come, that he is the one that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. That is the task of Matthew. He is trying to take that task seriously and speak to the world, and specifically the Jews first. He is trying to say, this Jesus that you know as Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Messiah. He's an evangelist, that's what Matthew is. He's telling us good news, the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He is the one that they have been waiting for God to send. Matthew's concern is not give, to give us more of like history or Jesus' life. Like We want to make sure we have all the details written down. That's not what Matthew is trying to do. Like What we've already learned in Joshua, when we look at the Bible, historical preservation is not the main goal. That's not what we're after. The goal of Matthew is to truthfully and convincingly and carefully declare that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew and the other gospel writers have taken their task seriously. Now, we already know this. There's not just one Matthew's and the only gospel writer, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different tellings of Jesus' life and the events that surround it. Four different tellings, and because of this, we should ask the question, why? Was one enough or did they all kind of like fill each other's gaps in and make sure we had a perfect record of what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection his life before that was all like? Or is there possibly a different purpose that each had as they go into writing the Gospels? I'll say this. This is because the four different ones, each one has a different and important presentation of Jesus. It's almost as though they are showing us a different portrait of who he is. Not as though they're discrepant, but they're showing us different sides and helping us understand who this person Jesus is. For instance, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is shown to be the great I Am. Or in the opening words, you know he is the Word. He is the one that created everything. And as such, we realize through John that he is God himself. That we should not think that he is somehow removed from God but rather he is the word. Think about Mark, the Gospel of Mark, we see a portrait of Jesus as a great and the great servant. In Luke, he's presented as the savior of all mankind. And each gospel presentation, each evangelist is giving us a unique portrait of who this Jesus is. So as we look at Matthew, it helps us to answer that question right up front. How is Matthew presenting Jesus to the reader, us? The answer, as we've stated, is that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah King, the true son of David. So if this is Matthew's goal, we come to the opening words of Matthew 1, 1-17, and we realize that Matthew's strategy to answering that question, how would you write about this guy, is to show his pedigree to show his credentials, to show part of his family tree that proves that he really is the son of David, that he really does qualify to be called Messiah. Now, not many of us would go to the doctor's office and pick up the magazine, uh, Family Tree Magazine. That is a real magazine, by the way. Um, But even if we did, I'm sure you would not be surprised to find that even in this periodical, uh, Family Tree Magazine, that There are no genealogies or family trees, specifically, at all. It's just like talking about how to do family trees and how to do genealogical studies. They're so boring, no one even puts them in the periodicals. Like, genealogies aren't the most exciting and important thing that someone could choose to read. Um, No one wants to read John Doe, father of three grandchildren, grandfather of 12 grandchildren, and great-grandfather of 19 great-grandchildren. And here are their names listed out alphabetically. No one really cares to put that kind of time into someone else's genealogy. We all know that family genealogies or family trees are important, mainly for our own families to kind of know where we came from. We may enjoy reading on Ancestry.com or figuring out where we came from or the different places. But overall, besides like wills and understanding important land grants, to the general public, genealogical reading is not that exciting. It's just it doesn't seem that important to us. When we come to Matthew 1, we come to it with that type of non understanding oftentimes. That somehow this is history and it's important for somebody, but we'd much rather see it in a footnote than here at the beginning. It just doesn't seem to be that exciting or important for us to understand. I mean, all of people's family tree, again, is good. We want to see that. It's good that Matthew took the time to write it down. We're thankful for it, but again, for our purposes, we'd rather just kind of Read past it, and once we get to the beginning, like halfway through chapter one, that's where we kind of pick up. But when we view it this way, which again is normal for a modern American, we don't understand why Matthew would start out this way. To us, again, it seems relegated to something like a footnote or maybe an appendix. But here he puts it right at the beginning of his account of who Jesus is. It may seem to us boring or a methodical presentation that simply connects us to the past, but it's far more than that. I know that this is not, again, the most thrilling reading for us. At least you may not think so yet. But I think that we don't see this as thrilling because we don't understand why Matthew is using the genealogy. Um, You've all heard me say, probably several times now, that the Bible's chief goal is not to record history. That's not the point of the Bible. But rather to proclaim the story of God to us and to teach how we are to respond to him. The same principle kind of here is at work. An author does not include a genealogy because he thinks it's a good idea to write down the history, to make sure it's recorded. But rather, it serves his specific purpose. If history um, was what he was after, if he was really trying to do that, we would all really struggle with that once we get to Luke 3. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because if you look at Luke 3, you're going to find another genealogy of Jesus. And it's not going to seem to match. It's going to look very different and you're going to, if you're not, if you're thinking about this only as history, you're going to freak out a little bit. So you're like, uh, these don't match. Why is that not true? Why is there gaps here? And it looks like someone added something here. Like, are they making stuff up? Like, is this reliable? What's going on here? And again, I, I realize that might be a little disheartening for us, but it's important for us to take this into account. How could it be that Matthew 1 is so different from Luke 3? I mean, didn't Matthew and Luke, they live in the same time period? Didn't they have a conversation about these lists to make sure they're all joined up? And they had it like, if they want to be taken seriously, they're like, hey, dude, let's get this right. Make sure we have the same list here so that we can take it seriously and this looks historically accurate. Or could it be that these gaps or additions are not showing something that's non-historical, but rather they choose to include certain groups and instead take some out, or exclude some, for the sake of proving their point. Now again, I didn't know, before I really started working to study this, I didn't know this to be true, but if you look at any of genealogical records, specifically in this time period and around the world, this is the evidence that you see. It is not solely so they will have an understanding of exactly who went from who to who to who to who. who. Instead, if you look at like the Sumerian king's list, or if you look at like Hammurabi's, all of his list, now I know I'm getting a little nerdy on you, but it's important. The way that they use this is to to prove points. They are trying to prove some sort of political point or religious point or something that ties them back to a certain personage. And as such, they have no problem leaving out some of the ancestors. As long as the information is still historical, they will skip different generations. So when we see this here, we should go into the same idea saying, is it possible that he is doing this for us and actually pointing us back on purpose to specific people to prove his point? Again, this is not strange at all. Uh, Is it also possible we use the term father very literally? But even in our own scriptures, we watch as someone says father, and they mean descendant or someone who is before them. Do you remember even in Joshua we've said this The promises that have been made to them said that these were swore to your fathers. We talk about our forefathers. We understand that use of language. But here when we get the genealogy, we're like, oh, no, 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 it's got to be his father, like his mom and dad, that's who it was. No, these are rightly saying they're ancestors. And so we may see between Matthew 1 and Luke 3, it seems almost like a discrepancy. But what, again, I want to remind us is that they are going after a specific purpose in using that genealogy. Matthew and Luke have very different purposes, and therefore their genealogies look different. And yet, get this, their, their, histo- their history is still accurate. It's not fabricated, made up, deleted. It's still accurate. Therefore, our job is not to take out a huge whiteboard and make sure we have the whole family tree all the way down and make sure we fill it all out. Our job is to read this genealogy that, that he pre- shows to us, that Matthew shows to us, and figure out the details and why he adds certain things and takes other things away and make sure that we understand his point. This is the first step on the way to convincing the Jews to submit to their king. The first thing he does, Matthew will take the rest of the gospel to show and convince this crowd that talk is cheap, but Jesus is the real thing. But before you see that, we, we, he starts it off, and his strategy here to bring in is a genealogy so they might understand the legitimate pedigree that Jesus has. You have to remember that Jews wouldn't for a minute hear someone out who called themselves the Messiah. Again, we would think someone's crazy if that was the, they came and they said that to us. During this time, there were several Messiahs popping up here and there, trying to bring in the kingdom of God by teaching zealously the actions for Christ, for, for God. But Most of these guys were charismatic, maybe even devoted, but this didn't mean that they were actually in the line of David. Matthew's tactic is to begin by giving the Jews, these rightful skeptics, the pertinent documentation, the credentials, the genealogy, that would prove that this man, Jesus, came from a legitimate source, and that they ought to sit up and take account of what he is saying. So today, what we are doing together is looking at this documentation, looking at this paperwork, looking at this and seeing if what it says actually makes sense and to see what he's trying to say with it. Our goal is to look at the genealogy and hear Matthew say, this is why you ought to pay attention to Jesus. And if you and I are concerned with some of the things about that we know about Jesus, like possibly that he was born from an unwed mother or that he fraternized with sinners and tax collectors and other Gentiles, we should pay attention to some of the details that he puts right here into the genealogy. If you have some of these concerns, that's that's good, but it might help us to get the perspective of Matthew showing us that this is not a new thing. Now look at verse 1 here, and you're going to see the title of chapters 1 and 2. It's a title, the first verse, and it claims that what you're seeing is the beginnings or the origins, or the word that you see in the ESV here is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The beginnings. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this is quite a claim. This is huge for them, and it would immediately have a devoted Jew's attention and have his look up and say, no, really? I I get it. We're all sons of Abraham, all Jews, duh. But you're saying he's a son of David. And we all know what that means. You're claiming something messianic, that this is actually going back to what God promised in David's line, that forever there would be a king. Really? The carpenter? The son of Mary and Joseph? He's from the son of David? I mean, I get it, but like the he is from Abraham, but really, is he really from David? So what we're gonna do then, we're gonna take a look at one through 17, and as we do, I want us to see the same and see if we can ask and answer some of these questions. Now, I realize this is not thrilling reading. However, I want you to walk through this with me. I'm gonna give you a little bit of a, a, a heads up to help us. I'm gonna ask you to notice three things so that you realize this is not just boring reading. First, notice the structure of the genealogy. It's set off in three sets of 14 names. This is interesting. Why would he do this? Why not just keep on writing name after name after name? Why would he do three different sets of 14? And By the way, in verse 17, he even calls himself out, showing that he's done this. Second, notice that women are included in this genealogy. This is just a little bit strange. It's not unseen, but it's a little bit strange. and We should, also, we should come to this and ask the question, why? Why would they include these women? Why does Matthew think it's important? Third, notice all the additional phrases attached to certain people. Now, these shouldn't be here unless they're important to the author. You should have, when you're reading a genealogy, rightly so, it should be a boring, rhythmic reading over and over, almost like, and and so-and-so fathered, so-and-so and and so-and-so fathered so-and-so. And And you're going to hear me almost like a sing-songy rhythmic beat to this genealogy when we read it. However, you're going to notice that there are times when it breaks from that and it adds something else in or explains something in the middle of a genealogy. That's weird. And we should actually pay attention to that as a reader. So consider these things and pay attention as I go from 1 to 17. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we go. The king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. Are you asleep yet? And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Whew. Okay, so there's lots of stuff going on in here. You never thought you'd hear a genealogy read in a sermon, but there you go. Um, it is full of interesting facts here. So many different things going on, points of departure that we don't understand why he would do this thing. They seem not to be necessary, but again, we could take hours to go through each of these different points to help ourselves understand all that's going on here, but I think this would be a little overwhelming and it would possibly actually distract from the main point of Matthew. So instead, we will look at the most significant details here and make sure that we stay true to the understanding that Matthew is trying to convey to us, his reader. Again, we want to understand why he put this genealogy here. I've got three major things that we need to recognize. First, just we'll look at these three different things and it will help us get perspective. First, let's talk about the women who are included in this genealogy. You've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. Let's go back, and I'm going to just, just give a brief description of each one. Let's start with Tamar. This is Genesis 38. It's a little bit of a graphic story. Here we go. This is Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah had three sons, and his oldest, Er, he gives Tamar as as the wife and husband. So Tamar and Er are married. Er dies. And so instead, he had her marry uh, the next son. Well, not marry, but actually have them together so that he would provide seed for his brother. This was Onan, the next one, to propagate the line of his brother. But Onan goes into Tamar's bed, but doesn't want the child to be his brothers. And so instead, he wastes his semen on the ground. And God kills him for this. So then the next person up is Shelah, the youngest brother. But Judah, the father, does not act honorably. He does, not give, uh, he does not give Sheila to Tamar to propagate Ur's line. Instead, he says, just wait until he grows up. Time goes by, nothing changes. Eventually, Judah's wife dies. And Judah, again acting uh, dishonorably and sinfully, goes to the house of a prostitute. Who happens to be the prostitute but the one who has figured it out that Judah is going to do this? She has dressed herself as a prostitute, Tamar, to continue her husband's line. And in this act, she gets pregnant. And that's what we're seeing here. This is the act that they are discussing. I realize this is not like a comfortable story for us. That's the way we should feel. That's why he puts it right here. This is the King of Kings, Lord of Lord, Jesus. This is in his, his genealogy. Do you feel that? Like, like, this is not quite right. I don't really like that this happened. Uh, and yet what Tamar did was actually act faithfully and make sure that her husband's line was continued. And God used this. I don't understand all the inner workings of how this in his ways, but I trust that he is good. And what he does is refer back to this. When he says in, in Matthew, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, it's this story that we're going back to. It was through Tamar that God overcame the sin and negligence of Judah to provide a seed that could carry on the blessings of Abraham and all the promises that were to come. So there's Tamar. Big, ugly story there. Let's look at Rahab. Now, we were just in Joshua 2 and 6, so we know what Rahab did. We know what her profession was before she is rescued. She is a prostitute. Again, an unseemly, and we would even say a wicked, way of work. And yet here we see her act in great faith. That's what the author of Hebrews 11 says. It says, By faith she showed this place to the spies and hid them and took care of them. And by that she was able to win for herself by trusting in God this way, was able to find herself into the line of Jesus Christ. She becomes a proselyte. What I mean by that is she becomes a full Israelite, trusting and following all their ways, and marries a man and has the descendant Boaz. She marries Salmon and has a descendant, Boaz. It's unbelievable. And then we know what comes to the next story, Ruth. We referred to us from the whole book of Ruth. Ruth is not an Israelite. Do you remember where she's from? Moab? She is a Moabite. Do you know what that means about her heritage? She is a descendant of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Yeah, not cool. That's her genealogy. That's where she goes back to. And yet here, the story of Ruth, we find that this Moabite is found to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Messiah. And it was Ruth that becomes the picture of steadfast love and kindness to Naomi. And it is through her life that we watch as God blesses this family. And eventually we watch as Ruth marries Boaz and becomes the great-grandmother of King David. This is the pinnacle of that book. If you ever read that, that genealogy at the end is where it's at because you realize that through this Moabite comes King David. Lastly, though, we see the wife of Uriah. Now, we know her as Bathsheba. This is 2 Samuel 11. Notice, though, Matthew doesn't call her Bathsheba. He calls her by her married name. She is called out not as Bathsheba because that was, she wasn't Israelite, But she gets called out by her husband's name. Her husband's name, Uriah the Hittite. He's a Gentile. She is called out as another one that doesn't quite fit the bill as what we'd like to see in the line of Jesus, as pure and tidy and clean and nice. Instead, we have Bathsheba. As we know it, she is taken um, from the rooftop from uh, peeping King David, um, and she goes in with him, and he commits adultery with her. But after their son has died, we see as he completely turns to repentance and mournfully weeps and realizes his sin. And what he's done, not only in what he's done with Bathsheba, but what he's done against Uriah. Not only has he committed adultery, but he has also murdered Uriah. It's in the middle of this we realize that God is still a redeemer. And his promises cannot be thwarted. It was God who used this woman to father the next great king in David's line so that the promise that God had made would come to fruition. And so Matthew decided to include these four women. They are not neat and tidy and free of question and controversy. Uh, They don't even seem virtuous in some ways or a pure group that we would like to see in the line of a king. In this we see scandal Improper sexual behavior, and yet we watch as God intervenes over and over again to c- proclaim and commit to and to bring to fruition his promises. And now I want you to think forward. Think of the fifth woman in this genealogy, Mary. What do you think people thought of Mary? She's not married. She's on her way to Bethlehem with a a full baby load stomach because of honorable things? Like, just think about it, right? If all of us knew Mary in that day, all of us are rolling our eyes, right, from the Holy Spirit. Right. Like, that's happened before. Do we not have contempt for her, thinking that she is out of wedlock, having a baby, either she's been raped or she's been having some sort of an affair with Joseph or something that she should have just waited? We all think this did not go well. Something went wrong here. So when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we recognize that Mary is not abnormal. In a sense, he's paved the way, showing that God has overcome all these different circumstances and showed that even though we may cast contempt on all these other ones, we ought not to. What God is bringing to fruition, we must trust him in, and that he is the God here, and he is actually bringing us to a point where we realize this is the Messiah, and we realize that he is in control. Now, Matthew clears the way for Mary and shows us here that even though it would seem scandalous and spotty, her reputation, this is one of the ones that God has chosen to be in the line of David. That's the first thing. We'll talk about the women. Second thing, let's talk about the fact that these women are Gentiles. Again, Bathsheba is an Israelite, but again, how the author puts her in light with Uriah the Hittite is that these are four seen to be some sort of a Gentile. So I'd like you to think about this and the fact that this starts, this genealogy doesn't start with Adam, it starts with Abraham. Now, again, to us, we're like, yeah, a Jew, that's good. How do these things go together? If we talk about the four women, you know that they are not the highest caliber in the gene pool of being a Jew. We all get that. This is not the pristine bloodline that we would like to see in the King of Kings. Gentiles are included in the genealogy. But why does he connect it to Abraham? Do you remember the promises that God made to Abraham? Now, you probably do. He talked about children or seed, he talked about land. But he also talked about another thing that we kind of are like, yeah, of course. He talked about blessing. And it wasn't just any blessing. If you consider Genesis 22, God promised Abraham that in his offspring, all nations would be blessed. All the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's what's happening here. This is not just the Jews. But rather through this, we're seeing that we're talking about Gentiles, All nations means everyone who's not a Jew. That means all of us. In Jesus' genealogy, we are watching as Matthew shows us that already these Gentiles are being folded in and are part of the blessing of Abraham. But we should not be surprised when we get to Jesus and we realize that God is leading us to the one who will make it and bring blessing to all of the nations. And just to make sure that we don't think that I'm jumping out on a limb here, remember what Matthew, in his, we're talking about Matthew, right? In his presentation, probably all of you, the only, if, if you know only one thing from Matthew, you know Matthew 28, you know the Great Commission. And you know this part, it says this. He tells his disciples they are to go and make disciples of who? All nations. They are seeing the blessing that he promised to Abraham through Jesus himself and now to be spread throughout all the nations of the world. He is making sure we understand that this Jesus is the one that was promised to Abraham. And this promise is not for a Jew only, but rather it will be a blessing to all of the world. Now we see this and we should stand back and say, wow. This is crazy. Matthew's making the connection that this person, Jesus, was the one that God had been pointing to the whole time. That's right. The third thing, though, we need to look at. So we've talked about the women. We've talked about this here, that they're Gentiles. But the third thing is this structure. Again, it sounds boring. Why are there three sets of 14? Uh, Is there something special about the number 14? Or is there something special about the number three? Like, I mean, we could get real excited about this and on numerology and like, oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. There's three people in the, in the Trinity. Oh, it must be this. I, I get, we could get real creative, real fast about 14s and break them down into groups of two. I mean, seven, seven number perfection. I'm okay with all of that. If you remember, you're speculating and remember that that's not what he directly ties it to here. What we can be very sure of is that he has taken three sections and he's purposely put them together And these different sections teach us about something. Each of these different sections point us to one main person in the genealogy, David. Each of them help us. If you take a look here, this is what we're going to look at. Uh, The first 14 names point to David's origins. We start with Abraham, and he takes us all the way to David, the king. Again, you probably heard me enunciate that while I'm reading, but you and I should notice that no one else gets this title. David alone gets this title at the end of verse, or in verse six, David, the king. Now the second one, the second group of 14, recounts the decay and downfall of David's throne. We know this story. If you read 1 and 2 Kings and you realize after what happens, the next king and the next king, you're just hoping that the kingdom holds on because of these wicked kings that do not listen to God and they do what they want to do and they serve other gods and you're just praying, oh Lord, I hope the next king is a good one. And we see here in the second section the decay and downfall of David's throne. So by the end of the time, when they're at the deportation of Babylon, the exile, we assume that the throne of David is completely lost. But in the third section of 14 names, we realize that all is not lost. In the third 14 names, Matthew shows the Davidic kingly line restored. And now, by God's grace, we are seeing the son of David emerge from the shattered family tree that has somehow survived the deportation to Babylon and returned to Israel. Matthew is pointing us to the most important person in this genealogy, David. This genealogy is pointing to him, and we know in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord makes a covenant with who? David. He comes to him, and most of us remember this, the covenant is special. It's not just a rehash of the Abrahamic covenant. It is specific. It is miraculous. In this covenant, the Lord promises David that God's steadfast love would never depart from the line of David and that he would establish his throne forever. That's a very unique and important word. This is what Matthew then is claiming to be true about Jesus. He is saying that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the one that all Israel has been waiting for. He is therefore the true king. And more than that, Matthew isn't just saying that he's one of the kings or he's just one of the sons that have come along from the davidic line. He is saying that Jesus himself is the true fulfillment of the davidic covenant and that all the promises and all the prophecies that surrounded this prophesied son of david have come to fruition in Jesus Christ. Matthew is claiming that all the world ought to stop and take note of this person Jesus of Nazareth because he's not just any old rabbinic teacher but he is the messiah himself the son of david. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a faith healer. He's the son of David. That is the true king of Israel, and the one who would bring blessing to all nations. I'm going back for a minute here, if I, I open up this with illustration about my manager Bob explaining my uh, my my jockey uh, credentials, you know, I, I hand him that, and you kind of were able to sit up and take take account of like that. I may actually be true if I show you these credentials. Matthew is starting. Uh, with his, his gospel account of Jesus by providing us with the credentials, the paperwork, the pedigree, so that the Jews might sit up and take notice of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. He begins with a genealogy so that they might realize that this person, Jesus, deserves their respect and attention, that he may actually be qualified to be the Son of God, to be the Son of David, to be the one that they call the Messiah the one who is so powerful and wonderful that he could possibly rule forever. This is who Matthew is presenting to his reader. And I happen to be one of those readers, and you happen to be one of those readers. And today, we stand here listening to Matthew's claims about Jesus Christ. And we're called to consider the same thing. This is not some dusty old book for those that were just a few years after Jesus died. This person, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, he is a Jew. But more importantly, he is the son of David. He is in a position to be the most important person for all of history. And as such, he demands our allegiance. Now at this point, there are two groups of people in the room. Uh, the first group, are the ones who recognize that Jesus is the king and have submitted as, as he is their Lord and Savior and he is the king. But there's a second group of you that do not trust him, that do not know him as king. And he seems to be a good guy, but he's not your king. It doesn't make sense to call him king necessarily. Let me start with the second group first. Friend, I realize that you may not be convinced from this little genealogy, that somehow this genealogy is supposed to convince you to become a Christian. You should join the Christian group. You are a skeptic, I understand. You can't see this person and who knows if these documents are even accurate. I mean, they seem to conflict. How could they be right? And uh, this is just found in some dusty old book called the Bible. I don't know what relevance it has for my life or there are others in the same group that have grown up around Christianity and they know all the stories and you know all the stuff about it and what it's supposed to be like. But he's not the king of your life. He's just a great teacher And, and you respect him and he's good with that. But he's certainly not the king. Doesn't make sense that we would call him that. No one is ruling on the throne that you can see. You don't feel like you're bound to him in any sort of a way. What bearing does Jesus really have on anyone's life, friend? May I plead with you today, this morning, to hear the Holy Spirit call you to walk away from your foolish rebellion. You, I, I am nobody. I haven't been so smart that I figured out the truth. It is Christ's spirit working in me to say, he is the king. And may I call you to the same thing, to hear the Holy Spirit say, he is the king. And you must repent and come to him alone. There is no other king. There is no one else who holds the entire world in his hands. But this king, King Jesus, demands your allegiance. He created you, he owns you, and he demands your allegiance. Anything other than submission and obedience to this God is nothing short of treason, rebellion. And it's cosmic in it's in its scope. So please, friend, I beg of you, do not continue in your sin, but repent and believe the gospel. Turn to Jesus, who is the true Savior and King. He is loving and true, giving himself as your price so that you would not have the wrath of God poured out on you, which you rightly deserve. Christian, believer, I turn to you next. I fear that our Christianity has forgotten that Jesus is king. I think we do a pretty good job of reminding each other and the world that he's the savior. We're okay with that. We like that. We've not taken Matthew and the prophets and the rest of the Bible seriously if we do not see Jesus as the Lord and king of everything. Everything including your heart, your finances, your skills, your family, fill in the blank. If he's the king that he says he is, he deserves every bit of my submission and joyful obedience. There is no savior who is not king. Let me say it again. The Bible shows us there is no savior who is not also king. The Bible never gives us a picture of Jesus who is Savior, but not King. You can kind of do what you want to. Who save you, but you can kind of do what you want to. Jesus isn't the King. In fact, before we ever get to the need of redemption and atonement and the work of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion, Matthew declares to us the first truth, that he's the Messiah King. That is his first order of business. So my call to us, Christian, brother and sister, is simple. How are you living before Jesus? the king. I cannot answer that for you. I can answer for myself, and I can start repenting now. Our, our lives should be marked by repentance and faith, realizing our smallness before the creator, the king, the one who is the word, but who also is the Messiah, king, the son of David. If Jesus Christ is the king, and now you are hearing it crystal clear that he is then you and I are to be his obedient and joyful subjects. We are to listen with ready hearts, willing to give our hearts, our time, our money, our skills, our families, everything to our king for the sake of his glory and the furtherance of his kingdom. It is not a duty when we realize that this king is good and loving and has given himself in our place. Rather, it's a delight. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is our king. Let us then together hail him as king and live before him with humility and obedient hearts, giving homage to the one who rules over all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your beautiful gift in Jesus Christ. We are thankful that you have not Judged us on the spot. Even as redeemed people, Lord, we choose sin. We allow our hearts to so easily wander. And Lord, we ask that you would show us these wanderings, and that we'd repent and turn to you as King. I pray for those in this room, and those that would hear, and those that would hear the the the, the repercussions of this passage, Lord. That do not know you, that do not trust you, that do not love you. And whether they know it or not, they hate you. Would they turn from their sin and submit to you, not only as Savior, but as King? Lord, you are a good and gracious King. We give you all homage and and, and praise and and glory because otherwise, Lord, we are telling lies. We ask that you would continue to work in our hearts, Lord, faith to believe the truth about who you are. Would you make us to be obedient, loving, joyful servants, God of the King? I pray that you'll do your work. In Jesus' name we pray.